Welcome to the Think Christian Podcast, where we talk about faith and pop culture, because there's no such thing as secular. I'm Josh Larson, editor at thinkchristian.net. Now, there are movie characters you love, and then there are movie characters who you dressed up as when you were a kid. Indiana Jones is one of the latter for me. So it was with excitement, but also a little bit of trepidation that I went into Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, the first indie film in 15 years and purportedly the last one with Harrison Ford in the iconic title role. Would the movie with new director James Mangold stepping in for Steven Spielberg do right by the series and the character? What would it be like to see the 80-year-old Ford back in that hat? Abby Chessy and Eric Danielson are going to join me to consider those questions. We'll also think about the ways this has been a theologically-minded series, what with cameos by the Ark of the Covenant, the Holy Grail, and the Holy Spear. Let's bring them on. It's circa 1984, Halloween, and my younger sisters and I are all dressed up to go trick-or-treating. One of them is dressed as a clown, wearing our great-grandmother's wig, I think, judging by the photo I tracked down. I don't know how that all came about. The other one is a cute little witch. Meanwhile, I'm in a pretty janky, handmade Indiana Jones outfit. I've got a plaid shirt on, even though I don't think he ever, ever wore a plaid shirt. (laughs) Um, A fedora-like hat, you could probably call it, and inexplicably oversized gardening gloves. So to most people, I I probably look like some sort of rodeo reject, but in my <laughs> mind, I was indie, no doubt about it. Now, Abiel Chessie and Eric Danielson are here, and you two are both younger than me, so your relationship with this iconic character embodied by Harrison Ford probably doesn't go back quite as far. But I still want to know, when do you remember encountering Indiana Jones, Abby? And what sort of hold, if any, does does this character have on your imagination? Oh, man, that's a good question. So um, like most things that I remember my parents knowing about before me, um, which you can put um, Star Wars in that category, too. Um, also, Time Bandits, Labyrinth, and um, the films of Peter Weir, weirdly. Um, okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I first, I think, encountered Indiana Jones as a concept um, that was told to me by my parents. Um, So they would often tell me like the plots of movies that they thought that I should see, but was maybe too young to see, Mm. I think to gauge interest. Um, And all of these stories in my brain, like, kind of feel like stories that you tell around a campfire. So like I knew kind of the basic outline of the plot of Raiders of the Lost Ark. I knew there was a boulder and snakes involved. Um, (laughs) And uh, when I was eight, I knew there was a ride at Disneyland that was super popular that my cousin wanted to go on. Um, I don't know that I really encountered the movies themselves until I was a little bit older, like maybe 11 or 12. And they were like regular rotation on cable. Yeah. Nice. How about you, Eric? So I was thinking about this the other day, and I have really vivid memories of the Temple of Doom, but I was looking at the timeline and thinking that can't possibly be right because I was a preschooler when that film came out. There's no way my parents were dragging me to the theater to see that. And I realized what happened, and this is one of those stories that you can only tell if you grew up at a time where there was basically three TV channels. Um, There was a show called Heroes and Sidekicks. I don't know if 
either of you ever saw this. I think it was an hour-long special on one of the networks. And it was this kind of like look at heroes and sidekicks throughout Hollywood history. So you had the Lone Ranger. You probably had, I'm sure there was like, you know, Laurel and Hardy. I very distinctly remember Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. But like every fourth or fifth clip was Indiana Jones and Short Round. And it dawned on me later that this was like something produced in conjunction with the studio as kind of this like souped up advertisement for Temple of Doom. And so I saw that probably right when the film came out. I was like maybe five And so by the time I finally saw Temple of Doom, which was probably a few years later, I had a ton of scenes kind of like already committed to memory and felt like I had seen the film because they had, you know, the scene on the rope bridge or, you know, one of the scenes when Short Round's driving or something like that. Like all of those scenes had been on that TV special. So I think probably by the time Last Crusade came out, I was like catching up on the films um, as an older grade schooler. But that was my first encounter was this like TV special um, interspersed with all these clips. And I would say as far as like the hold on my imagination, I'm sure this is not an uncommon story. But, you know, as somebody who grew up, you know, kind of became aware of pop culture in the late 80s, early 90s, like Harrison Ford was kind of the man, literally. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, from Star Wars and Indiana Jones, he was kind of like the example of kind of rugged masculinity, kind of cool, a little bit smirking, you know, a smart guy's action hero. And, you know, for some people, I think they were probably a little bit older than me. He was Han Solo. But to me, he was Indiana Jones. Like, I I liked the Star Wars movies, but Indiana Jones was the definitive, like, Harrison Ford role. And so, yeah, this that role was a huge part of my childhood and, and definitely, like, stood up there for me on my list of, of kind of uh, pop culture heroes. Do you remember feeling that sort of weight or mythic weight to this character when you first encountered Indiana Jones, Abby, or was it different for you in terms of, I'm, you know, Eric seeing him within the context of this special about heroes, it's kind of predetermined right within that. Did it take a while for him to kind of grow on you or was this a character you remember responding to right away? I think I, um, I think I responded to him, um, partly because the character was already sort of there in my in my cultural imagination. I'm remembering now that um, as a kid, there was uh, like back in the 90s when uh, the idea of special effects was becoming like a huge thing. Everybody wanted to know more about it. There was an exhibit at, I think, the Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago that was like some of the great the, the great like special effects stuff from throughout film history. And there was like a model of, of Indiana Jones and like the hat, the whip, the, the boulder, like all the mm. stuff. And so like the knowledge of all of those things existing was already in my brain. And then seeing it actually happen was almost a little bit like watching a historical reenactment. <laughs> so I kind of, I, it makes it sound like, and I did really, I came to this backwards. Um, so I think yeah. I've, uh, I've gained a lot of appreciation for the character, but it was definitely like, I've added context the older I've gotten where like I've understood more and more about what that was and what that meant. Yeah. So both of you, it's it's material outside of the movies that formed your perception of the character before you got to the movies. So definitely, definitely a little bit different than me. Um, but yet. I'm sure all of us have revisited these films over the years, and uh, it's more seeped into our imagination, the actual experience of seeing Indiana Jones on screen. So now we have Dial of Destiny, and the first place I think we need to go is just, did this movie work for you? Was it worth it? that they put the effort into making another one of these? Did you need another one of these? How did all of these questions circulate in your mind? How did the film itself, now that you've seen it, answer those? Let me give a little bit of plot first for, for listeners here. Uh, and there is this very entertaining World War II set prologue that has a de-aged 
Harrison Ford as Indy. We can maybe get into that if we want to. But then the movie jumps ahead and settles in around 1969, uh, where Dr. Henry Walton, Indiana Jones Jr., is on the eve of retirement from teaching. But instead of a quiet twilight of rest and study, he's approached by his estranged goddaughter, Helena, played by Phoebe Waller-Bridge of Fleabag fame. And she drags him through this globe-hopping escapade, involves Greco-Roman history, the Moroccan mafia, sea eels, and, of course, Nazis. So a lot of familiar elements there. What did you make of Dial of Destiny, Eric? So many questions that are swirling in my mind that you asked just a moment ago. I will say I I didn't feel going into it that I needed another Indiana Jones film. Um, I'll say that I have not revisited Kingdom of the Crystal Skull um, since it came out. My... If my memory of my gut impression from that film stands, I like this one a bit better than that one. But I think I will I think I will say that like probably going forward, my my like memory or my kind of like immediate reference for Indiana Jones will always kind of be the first three films. These two films kind of sit a little bit outside for me as, you know, maybe a little bit of apocryphal gospel or something like that. It's still still very related, <laughs> um, but it doesn't necessarily feel like canon. But I enjoyed the film, I will say that. I, I thought it was just fine. I honestly wasn't crazy about the first act of the film. And I don't know that I was actually crazy about the last act of the film, but I really enjoyed the middle. And I feel like it was kind of the old Hollywood throwback to kind of the road picture part of this film that really worked for me. The the back and forth between, you know, Ford and, and um, Phoebe Waller-Bridge, all of that. So it was definitely worth it. I'm glad I saw it. Um, I don't know that it's going to have a long hold on my memory or imagination, but it was definitely an enjoyable, uh, you know, viewing experience. We do get those maps in that middle section, which I, I just love. We get to see him traveling across the globe on those maps. So I'm glad they kept up that tradition. It's such an overused bit at this point, And I absolutely loved it. It was one uh, of yeah. my favorite yeah. things in the film <laughs> yeah. um, because it really did. It felt like a throwback, which is what those early films do. They feel like a throwback to kind of those 40s and 50s action pictures. And I, I feel like the middle of that when we weren't doing all of the, you know, if we want to talk about the de-aging later or whatever, when we weren't necessarily doing all of the really intense special effects and it was just car chases and you know digging in caves and all of that that part absolutely (laughs) like i was all in for that section of the film all right how did it work for you abby yeah um i think eric you and i are on kind of a similar page uh i was kind of i know josh you're you're more of a, a crystal skull defender than than either of us probably I it's true <laughs> um, and there were parts of crystal skull that i liked um but i the ending of that one didn't really didn't work for me and i was kind of coming back a little bit burned from that and thinking like what what are we doing here what's and <laughs> like spielberg isn't even directing at this point like what is left um right and i was i was pleasantly surprised i think it was a worthy outing uh it was a really nice uh, I hope farewell to the character. Um, I think there are a couple of times where um, like there's a lot to be said about legacy and time and presence, I think, throughout all of it, which I really like. I do think that that first portion that's like kind of the flashback section in, in World War Two kind of messes that up a little bit in in the way that it tries to have it both ways with the de-aging tech. But I think for the most part, the more I think about it the more I really like kind of the continuity of um, some specific themes that have carried throughout the series. Yeah, I agree with a lot of what you've said, except that I liked everything about it a couple of degrees more, (laughs) I would say. I'm with you, Eric, in that I didn't 
think I needed one of these until I saw it. And then I realized that I did need it. And I think the series needed it. Mm. And Mm. this goes back to Crystal Skull, which I do like quite a bit with you there on the ending, though, Abby, not its strongest point. Special effects, again, are a reason for there. It kind of gives in to these overblown special effects and poor live action. Indiana Jones is standing in the bottom left corner of the frame like, hey, but I'm here. I'm a real person. Let's pay attention to me. So it doesn't end on the greatest note, Crystal Skull. But the other thing I realized I wasn't thinking that about as being like really a farewell so much at that time. And now in retrospect, I realize it it was a very poor farewell for the character, even though there were other things I liked about it. I think it was true to the character, but I didn't want that to be the last Indiana Jones movie, um, even though I liked a lot about it. This, to me, felt like a much more appropriate goodbye, because as you touched on, Abby, it is about time and your place in time and the appropriateness of your place in time. And on the one hand, this is not the time and place for an Indiana Jones movie, right? For one thing, he's not a superhero. For another thing, the best sequences in these movies have never relied on special effects. And so what in the world are we doing with this guy in 2023 when movies have given themselves over to superheroes and special effects? But I did like how the film uses its own special effects, but also stands apart from these other blockbuster experiences that I've been having. And I think gives Indiana Jones as a character um, a nice goodbye that is fitting. He's, He's resisting in this movie, moving ahead in time. He doesn't want to go past 69. He doesn't even want to be in 69, right? And so I feel like it's fitting that this is a time and a movie where it's going to say, okay, we can all say goodbye to him now. Um, this is not his time anymore. And I thought the movie handled that that really well. So, so one of the um, threads that I definitely want to talk to the two of you about, and this has gone throughout the series, is... Indy's skeptical relationship with the supernatural. Mm. Um, it was right there in Raiders and, you know, in just about every film, it plays a big part. He he kind of in, instinctively scoffs at anything that can't be proven by science or, or some sort of hard artifact. I think he uses uh, the word superstition here and there. Maybe even in Raiders, he says superstition, right? But I do think gradually, as the series goes on, He gets worn down a little bit by these inexplicable encounters with the transcendent that he has in each movie. So I want to get your guys' feeling on that overall, but within the context of something in particular that he says in Dial of Destiny. And it's almost as if he's offering a final philosophy about all of this. Uh, It comes at a point where he's reflecting on his past and the supernatural quality of this movie's adventure, and he says this. I don't believe in magic, but a few times in my life, I've seen things, things I can't explain. And I've come to believe it's not so much what you believe, it's how hard you believe it. It's the last part I want to get into with you two. I've come to believe it's not so much about what you believe, it's how hard you believe it. What do you make of that, Abby? Is there something interesting about faith and belief there, or is that a lot of bad theology? Because I can't, I can't quite make up yeah. my mind. Um, it's funny, because I, I did note that too. Um, but um, I feel like it's almost kind of an incomplete statement, <laughs> um, because like— 
there's, yeah, what you believe, there's how hard you believe it, and there's what you're using it in the service of that I think is worth considering as well. Mm. And I think we do see that later in the film uh, in terms of Mads Mikkelsen's character, um, the evil Nazi doctor who wants to reunite both halves of the uh, the broken dial of destiny and uh, and use it for his own means. And, uh, I mean, ultimately, this is, I mean... It's a it's a three act movie and it's an Indiana Jones movie. So we know who comes out on top. But um, (laughs) uh, I think it's it's worth considering. What does Indy believe? What is he using his beliefs and his knowledge in the service of? Um, And Josh, you in your uh, your essay on uh, on TC, the give me the whip essay, uh, you used a phrase that I really liked called a better way of adventuring, um, where like the ethos in general is much more. Uh, restorative. And I keep thinking about the phrase, it belongs in a museum, which shows up in Raiders and shows up a lot here frequently um, Mm -hmm. in uh, kind of in relation to um, several other characters who, who have different, um, different beliefs in that regard. And so we kind of see where he fits and what kind of person he is, I think, based on his, his sense of preservation, I think, his, pre- his sense of wanting to help and wanting to save things for the better instead of use them for personal gain or um, use them to harm other people. I don't know if that's really an answer, but I feel like it's 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 kind of all over the place. I, no, I, <laughs> I like that because I hadn't thought about it that way, but it's 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 sort of like what is the fruit that your belief bears? Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. That seems to be. Yeah. Yeah. Which which is very appropriate, even going all the way back to Raiders and when he tells Marion when they're tied to the to the pole and they begin opening the arc it's to it's to look away those who don't the purpose for their looking in the face of God essentially metaphorically is to grab that power right and so whatever belief Indy might have there it's not towards gaining that power so so yeah I think that's an interesting distinction uh, did that line jump out at you, Eric, as well? Did you did you wrap your head around it at all? It did, but it felt, um, I think this is in concert with what Abby's saying, it felt like a little bit of a letdown to me because he says, you know, I've seen some things you can't explain. And my mind immediately goes, and, and I'm sorry to bring up um, poetry on this podcast, but my mind immediately goes <laughs> to the to the late, great Mary Oliver, who writes about the idea that like, if you, if you, uh, you know, don't ever believe you're going to see an angel, you never will, you know, kind Mm -hmm. of the idea of like, you Mm -hmm. you have to, you have to leave space for these things or they're not going to come. And I really liked that he was making that turn. And then he says that, and I thought, well, that's, that's kind of a cop out at the end, I felt like. And, you know, one thing that I think is interesting is he obviously, I mean, Abby put it really well, just kind of his personal ethics and his personal values and beliefs in terms of trying to preserve things. And, And he, it feels like he's so beholden to trying to make sure that we don't misuse the past and we don't misuse history and we don't misuse legacy. And I'm going to try to dance around spoilers here, but there comes a point late in the film where it feels like he's kind of going to give into that belief to the utmost. Mm -hmm. And the Phoebe Waller-Bridge character, who is far less principled and far less ethical throughout the rest of the film, kind of basically puts to him the question of, well, how she she doesn't say it like this, but essentially she's saying, oh, how do you work out that belief in relationship to other people? Mm-hmm. You know, are you going to actually be bound to other people as much or more than you're bound to 
these ideas and these principles. Um, and so I think that's just a really interesting test of his belief. How do you work that out and not just have a conversation with history and not just have a conversation with historical relics, but actually have implications, you know, in your real life and your real relationships. And so I think there's a sense in which I don't know that the, the film actually kind of refutes what Indy says, but it complicates it and makes him really have to wrestle with mm -hmm. like what the implications of that are. Yeah. Well, first of all, Eric, we're not an anti-poetry podcast, so <laughs> anytime you want to throw some verses out there, feel free. Um, I love th that that you just shared, and I think I'm ultimately with you, too, on this line can mean whatever you want it to mean is somewhat how it registers to me at first blush and still. I mean, I like, I like the angles we're bringing to it here, but it's sort of like he's saying a lot and has arrived at some sort of conclusion. But then when you think about it, um, he's not really saying much at, at all. Mm -hmm. um, and he's kind of putting it back on the person he's talking to and saying it doesn't become a philosophy of Indiana Jones and belief, really, because he essentially just throws it back on them and says it, your experience is what's ultimately going to matter and how you interpret that. Mm -hmm. But he doesn't fully share his own. So we're left wondering a little bit there um, with him. Anything else uh, along these lines? You know, I went the most obvious place theologically in terms of all the references to um, the presence of God and supernatural. And it's mostly the Judeo-Christian tradition that um, this franchise touches on. Temple of Doom goes in another direction. Um, but yeah, anything other than that obvious lane I took uh, that struck you guys about Dial of Destiny? Uh, to think a little bit further on on that line, I think there's also like you could read a certain sense of humility into it as well, um, which I think kind of goes along okay. with uh, Indy's not wanting to use certain things for his own game. Like he knows that these relics have significant power um, because he's seen it. And I think maybe there's something in there of just like, I don't know how to fully explain what it is that I've seen. I just know that it's powerful. I know that it's important. I know that it is not to be used selfishly. Um, which, I mean, maybe it is a little bit of a cop-out, but that's a pretty healthy relationship to have to the unknown, I think. <laughs> that's that's how most of us, I think, should <laughs> should react in the face of the glory of God if we can't fully identify it first, you know, first and foremost. And I like that's that is a character growth because humility isn't always something you would associate with Indiana right. Jones, um, especially towards the beginning when we first knew him. And to see more of that now, I like that building of the character. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if I could add to that, and then and I had one other thought, but I, I think you're both so right about the humility aspect. And I was thinking about that just even in the context of Ford's career, um, because so many of those early films, I mean, Han Solo is the most, you know, uh, cocky character, you know, that we can we can describe. And I feel like it really wasn't until some films, some of which were subpar, but had good performances in the early 90s, where I felt like you really saw him play more humble characters and characters who life was kind of knocking down a little bit. And so I do really appreciate kind of, and I think this is one of the the real pluses of having an Indiana Jones film at this point in history is you do get the older, a little bit wiser, maybe a little crankier, but also a little bit humbler Ford. And, and you do see that effect of time on him. And I think that's really good for us to see the character in that way. I think that actually gets to the thing that one thing that really bothered me and I'm not, I'm just not crazy about de-aging stuff anyway, but the whole, it seems like the whole crux of this whole series is here are these people that are always trying to 
control time and eternity and like rewrite history and all of these things. And Indiana Jones comes along to say, no, you can't, you know, do this. You can't manipulate, you know, the world. You can't manipulate these things in this way. And then the first 20 minutes of this movie is Harrison Ford, 40 years younger. Yeah. And I just thought, what, what, what have we done guys? This is, you know, this is like, this is what he, he wouldn't like that. Indiana Jones wouldn't like you using the technology in that I way. Agree. So I think that, yeah. And so I don't know if I'm thinking about that too hard or too little, but I really was very happy. And I, they, you know, they gave us the, is he 80 now? 80 year old Harrison Ford without a shirt in the first scene, trying to remind us that he's still a good looking guy. Give me 80-year-old Harrison Ford shirtless in that scene versus the DH Harrison Ford. I just I just I, I feel like it's so much truer to the franchise to have him in that way. So fair enough. Yeah, uh, I would and I um, do love that whole section where they're demythologizing him when we first get to 1969. He's kind of stripping away um the legend a little bit. I think that's yeah. that's that's important. Sure. Yeah, I think the uh, the de-aging thing, Eric, kind of got at a thematic thing that bugged me as well in that I think so much of this movie is about understanding who you are and where you're at at this point in your life, um, what you yeah. can do, what you can't do. And one of the things that I kept thinking about, again, was like, this is sort of, you know, the quote unquote last uh, Indiana Jones movie. I always put that in quotation marks because you never know. I never know. You have to. Um, you have to. But if this is that then I think the the phrase it belongs in a museum is uh, is one that probably requires a little bit of unpacking that um, I think Indy at this point in his life believes that he belongs in a museum and that he learns mm. throughout the course of the movie that maybe he as a human being does not necessarily, but maybe that younger version of him does like that belongs in the past. That is something else. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of hard to really dwell on that <laughs> when you have that first chunk and you have the de-aged Indiana Jones jumping around on a train as if the movie itself can't quite figure out how to put that in the past. Man, you guys are just, you're spoiling it for me because <laughs> you're both probably right. You're making good points. And I do, you know, the de-aging thing itself is it takes a while to adjust. I don't think it's like disastrous, but it's not seamless either. The only defense I will offer is that it's related to the demythologizing. I found it very crucial to have that quote unquote young Indiana Jones in a sequence that this new director, James Mangold, I think, you know, handles pretty cleanly and expertly. He's clearly not Spielberg, but I think that's a pretty exciting opening action sequence. For me, it was helpful to have that fresh in my mind that, okay, this was pretty much the guy that I remember in those other movies and then cut to 1969. Mm. So I do feel like if we had started in 69, with 80-year-old Ford, I think he's probably playing a 70-year-old or so Indiana Jones at this point, um, without his shirt as the first thing we see. I don't know. I, I feel like, while I understand what you're saying, I feel like some of the considerations of time passing and a legend being out of his time would have been lost a bit, at least for me. So that's that's my defense, maybe not of the de-aging, but just of of the narrative choice. At yeah, least. I think I can I can get behind that. Um it's I, I think it does serve a purpose and it's kind of unavoidable <laughs> at a certain point. Um, and part of the I think the existence of, of that technology as weird and off putting as it can sometimes be is that like it allows you to do things like that that you wouldn't have been able to do before that would have been really confusing to handle before. Um, so like, yeah, I will I will give it that even if I don't think it yeah, is quite as ethical as it could be. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. And I, I'm not going to like die on this hill by any means. I would just say like, I totally get it. And I think like expositionally, it's much harder to get into the story without that first sequence. I also think there, it was just so long. Like I feel like if we had, it had, was long. It if was. we'd had five <laughs> minutes of DH'd Ford or if we'd had some, you know, cross cutting with some, you know, DH, I think it was just the length of it really felt like, man, we are really, we are really tied to the mm -hmm. sequence so much. Um, and I just, I was, I just kept thinking like, yeah, he looks pretty good, but you can see kind of around the chin that that's not really him. And <laughs> I don't know, it, it just distracted me enough that then, you know, again, I'm, I'm kind of trying to think about how, how these characters use these, uh, these artifacts to their, you know, ill intention. And I'm just like, man, that's, it, it feels like we're, we're manipulating some things, but it's okay. A it's a little hip hypocritical, maybe. It's all right. It's, it's, yeah. a, it's a blockbuster yeah. film, and who, we don't have to do that. Who among us has not so. been hypocritical <laughs> right. before? We're, we're all trying to de-age in one way or another, aren't we? So, I mean, come sure. on. Basically. I think that um, we covered most of it. Unless there's one other thing either of you want to touch on, I just had a, a last question. Abby, you mentioned it's supposedly the last one, the last Indiana Jones film. Would either of you be interested in a Helena spinoff because there's a little character touch in the final moments involving her that the second time I saw it, I missed it the first time, but the second time, uh, just a gesture really that I thought, Oh, there's a, there's a door being left open, not for Harrison Ford. I don't think, but for her character, does that intrigue either of you? Or do you wish this really would be the end? Cause I'd be happy if this, I loved her. I thought she was great character, great performance, you know, fine, I guess, if she wants to make one, but I really don't need it. How are you two on that point? I, I think I would enjoy it, honestly. I think um, the character, Helena, is just, she's a lot of fun to spend time with. And I mean, a lot of that is due to Phoebe Wallerbridge having just face-melting amounts of charm. Um, but I think they also set the character up in a, in a useful way of, like, I think one of the kind of low-lying elements of this movie that I really like a lot is um, the idea of mentorship and being a father figure. And we see that she kind of has her own short round, <laughs> basically, uh, who we meet later in the film. And the relationship that they have together is really sweet. And I would definitely, I'd, I'd come back for like at least one more movie of the two of them kind of gallivanting around and learning from each other. I think it'd be a lot of fun. I'm not sure I, I need it. Um, but I would say this. I, I mean, I think Phoebe Waller-Bridge is terrific in this movie. She is absolutely pitch perfect um, for, for what this movie wants to do. I think um, I think it feels like it might be too much if we did another, you know, two and a half hours um, with that character. I will say if if the script, I mean, this isn't this Hollywood, if the script is right, um, you know, I think as long as I, I, I've seen films kind of do this where then, you know, we get this character's perspective and we kind of start over again where she's kind of still not the most ethical person and we have to watch her grow. She grows so much over the last act of this mm. film mm. that unless the movie really starts with her there going forward, I definitely wouldn't be interested. But um, I don't know. I would I would check out another one, but I'm not sure that's something that I'm just really craving. So as long as they do the maps in it, I yeah. think that's that's what maps. I need. It's got to have maps. It's got to have the maps and then I'll probably be okay with it. The maps need to be in the trailer is all I'm saying. So <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well, thank you both very much. Uh, aside from Indiana Jones, what else, what else does your summer hold? Eric, I know you're working on a piece about the new Foo Fighters album for TC. Uh, what else are you up to work-wise? 
that's that's mostly it right now. I've got some uh, well, I've got some poetry reviews actually that I need to be working on. There you on. go. Um, pop culture wise, I don't have a lot else planned. Although I will be coming your direction, Josh. I think in August I'm I'm hopefully coming to see um, Springsteen at Wrigley Field. So that'll be kind of the big pop nice. culture event wow. of, of my summer right before the summer ends. So. All right, we'll we'll have to try and connect when that is. Yeah, so yeah, cool. yeah, be in touch about that. How sure. about you, Abby? Um, well, I don't know if you've heard about this, but I have a book that's due soon. So um, <laughs> I am. We've mentioned yeah, it, we've but mentioned we can it. always mention it again. Uh, so that's that's a large part of what I'm doing is like really, truly, finally wrapping this book up. Um, but also just continuing to do uh, regular reviews for the pitch and um, kind of writing a little bit all over the place. Um, I'm really excited to uh, check out. Um, Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning this week. Um, yep, that's next yeah, up. Uh, Oppenheimer, I think the week after next. And Barbie, hopefully soon. So I'm looking forward to getting to see a lot of really, really exciting movies this summer. I feel like 2022, or I'm sorry, I feel like 2023 is really becoming a good movie year, which is something that I don't often figure out until like it's award season and I think back on everything. But this has been like yeah. a, just thinking back on the stuff that I've really enjoyed seeing or really looked forward to. Like there's a lot. I feel like the summer in particular, this is the first, like, since 2020, since the pandemic, the first summer movie season that's felt like yeah. the old-fashioned summer yeah. movie season where you're excited about something and you see it, you get to process it, you get to talk about it. And then the next week, there's almost something else that you're at least intrigued by, yeah. right? They're not all going to pan out. But um, th yeah, this is sort of like the big summer movies that are the big movie summers that that I remember. Yeah, it's been, true. So. Like, I don't think, yeah, like the way that people are talking about Barbieheimer Day on uh, <laughs> July 21st. <laughs> and I think a lot of people really genuinely are talking about going to see both those movies in the same day. Um, that's that's my daughter's plan. I yeah, know. <laughs> totally. And like, I'm power to them, man. I think that's a great idea. But I, I feel like I haven't. It's It's been a very long time. Like, I remember my childhood being full of like very highly advertised movies where I felt like that was the thing that everybody was doing. And this is maybe the closest to that that I've come to as an adult. Yeah, I agree. All right. So we'll see what we make of some of those titles, maybe on another episode of the podcast. But thank you, Abby. Thank you, Eric, for coming on and talking to me on this one. Yeah, thank you. Of course, we have more Indiana Jones coverage over at thinkchristian.net. As Abby mentioned, I did write last month about the different ways Indy's infamous whip has been used across the series. It's basically considering the movie prop as icon. Well, since seeing Dial of Destiny, I did add a postscript to that article breaking down how the whip is used in the new film. So you can find that in the comment thread to the article over at thinkchristian.net. We'll link to it in the show notes. If you want to be sure to keep up with all of our articles as they're published, the best way to do that is to sign up to get our emails. You can do that at thinkchristian.net slash subscribe. One more plug here before we go. The next online gathering of the TC Movie Club is just around the corner. At 8 p.m. Central on Monday, July 24, we'll be discussing Wes Anderson's Restoration Cinema, including his latest film, The Wonderful Asteroid City. To get the Zoom link for that online gathering, join the movie club at thinkchristian.net slash movie club. That's thinkchristian.net slash movie club. 
I've also made a video essay about Anderson's Rushmore for the movie club, Heaven and Hell and Heaven Again. You can find that on the Think Christian YouTube channel. That's also where you can find a video version of this episode. Hello to those of you who are watching us there. The TC Podcast is a listener-supported production of Reframe Ministries, a family of programs designed to help you see your whole life reframed by God's gospel story. Visit reframeministries.org for more information. Our audio engineer and post-production supervisor is John Reeder, and Reframe's co-director overseeing content strategy is Robin Bassett. I'm Josh Larson. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back in a couple of weeks to consider how another corner of our pop culture fandom connects with our faith. 